Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I never signed contracts with my artists. One of the reasons was so I could always talk honestly to them and not feel the pressure of a forced relationship. The second thing that I always always say to them is, you, you don't pay me to get no's. You can pay anybody to get a no. You pay me to get yeses, but I can't. The only way I can get you yeses is if you don't pressure me for time, A, and you allow me to be reasonable. So if you really want $10 million an episode, and the budgets are $10 million, I can give you the name of 20 managers who will go in and ask for it. I'm not one of them. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. I guarantee you today will be a day that you will remember for the rest of your life in podcasting because this guy is amazing, Shep Gordon, that we're going to meet. I'm going to introduce him, and if you guys are still awake after that, we're going to have the best time ever, I can guarantee you. I just made a commitment just now to quit Coca-Cola, so I know it's going to be a good day and a shitty day when I'm ready. (laughs) All right, here we go. Brace yourself, get some popcorn, lie back, and set the alarm clock. It's a long bio. (laughs) (laughs) After a childhood in Oceanside, New York, and a degree from SUNY at Buffalo, Shep Gordon founded Alive Enterprises, a personal management company, in 1969. Over the years, Gordon and Alive have been responsible for managing the careers of Alice Cooper, Groucho Marx, Raquel Welch, Ann Murray, Ben Marine. Teddy Pendergrass, Stephanie Mills, Blondie, Manhattan Transfer, Burton Cummings, Yvonne Elliman, Midnight Star, George Clinton, <laughs> Luther Vandross, Rick James, and Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, Kenny Loggins, the Gypsy Kings, the Pointer Sisters, and many, many more. Alive acts have sold over a hundred million records worldwide. 
Gordon and Alive set many precedents in the music industry, including the first television production of an album, Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare, the first long-form rock video produced for home release, Blondie's Eat to the Beat, and one of the first concert television series, Rock and Roll Tonight, all of which inspired a new generation of music, video, and theatrical rock concert productions. In the mid-70s, Alive ventured into the movie business, where its first production, Ridley Scott's The Duelists, won the Best Debut Film Award at the 1977 Cannes Film Festival. After several studio productions, including Roadie and Endangered Species, Gordon co-founded with Chris Blackwell and Island Records Island Alive and Alive Films for the production of independent feature films. Their commitment to artistic freedom attracted influential filmmakers and has been responsible for the production and or distribution of the Academy Award winning Kiss of the Spider Woman. I remember that movie so well, it blew me away. Academy Award nominated Betty Blue, which if you haven't seen that movie, will blow you away. Incredible movie. Marlene and El Norte, Lindsay Anderson's The Whales of August, Alan Rudolph's Choose Me and the Moderns, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, They Live and Village of the Dam, Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs, Sam Shepard's Silent Tongue, as well as 40 other titles. In 75, Alive expanded into the restaurant industry with the opening of its first restaurant, Carlos and Charlie's, which became a Hollywood institution, an institution in many places around the world for 20 years. In the late 80s, Alive partnered with Robert De Niro to open Tribeca Grill in New York City. What a great place. Alive's restaurant business is still active, having opened approximately 40 restaurants thus far, the most current being a founding partnership in John George's Spice Market in New York City. Gordon's management style has always involved an eye for talent and innate understanding of what people find entertaining. In 1992, with his eye focused on food as entertainment and chefs as entertainers, Gordon founded Alive Culinary Resources which was designed to bridge the gap between the public and the world's most sought-after chefs. From its inception, his client roster read like a who's who of the culinary world, including legendary French chef Roger Verger, <laughs> Alice Waters, Wolfgang Puck, Charlie Trotter, Emeril Lagasse, uh -huh. Dean Fearing, yeah. Nobu, Todd English, Charlie Palmer, Larry Forgione, yeah. Paul Prudhomme, Jimmy Smith, Stephen Piles, Robert Del Grande, <laughs> Daniel Ballou, Michelle Richard, and a hundred more of today's most famous chefs by making sure his chefs were always treated like his other artists with contracts, proper compensation, and respect. Gordon revolutionized the food industry and was able to help monetize the culinary arts into the multi-billion dollar industry it is today. Gordon is very active in philanthropic endeavors and is the coordinator and sponsor of the Roger Verger Culinary Scholarship Foundation, sits on the boards of Tibet Fund and Real FX, and the advisory board of the Taj Hotels, has served on the board of the American Liver Foundation, and is a founding member of the Hawaii Regional Cuisine Movement, and was inducted into the Hawaii Culinary Hall of Fame. Gordon also won numerous industry awards, including being named one of the 100 most influential people in Rolling Stone magazine and was the subject of Mike Myers' 2013 documentary, Supermensch, The Legend of Shep Gordon. Anthony Bourdain Echo will be releasing his book, They Call Me Supermensch, A Backstage Past, The Amazing World of Film, Food, and Rock and Roll 
on September 20th. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. What an honor. What a pleasure. Somebody wake him up. <laughs> Shep Gordon. If they heard that, I'd like to beat him. You like the <laughs> Sounds like a great guy. You are him. <laughs> oh, I forgot. <laughs> you know, it's always weird to hear about yourself because, you know, uh, I fart, I burp, I do all those things that humans do. Just not during the podcast. Yeah, hopefully not. But it, it's, uh, so anyway, when Mike showed me the movie, um, I was very detached from the documentary. Um, and, um, all I did was interviews. I wasn't really involved. I gave him full control. He didn't have to show it to me to approve anything. But he said, I can't put it out unless you see You got to see it and approve it because I love you. So I went to New York to his apartment to watch it, and he showed me the movie. At the end, he said, are you ever going to talk to me again? Do you hate me? Do you love me? And I said, no, but I'd love to go to lunch with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I think it's hard, to, you know, especially it's not what I do. Um, it's, it's, um, I'm not used to it. So, um, and I have flaws like everybody else has flaws. So to hear just those sides, but I, I loved hearing your, um, your cold opening, which I was here listening to and you, and your bridge between, um, your trip to Asia and the way people approach life. And, um, for me, one of my, to tie back into that for a second, because everything you said was very true, but my focus was a little different. I grew up, I got very lucky very young. I'm really successful. Lucky? I mean, luck is a part for everybody's career. I worked hard, I was smart, but I got lucky. Um, and I, you know, thank you, whoever's in charge for the luck. Um, but I found myself in a world of very successful people who were miserable really unhappy, um, drinking too much. Not, I mean, I'm gonna, I, I, I love liquor, I love drugs, I love fun, I love to have a good time. There's a difference between having a good time and watching people hurt themselves. And I lived in a world where everybody was dying. You know, um, Hendrix died, Morrison died, these were my peers. Janis Joplin died. Um, the business people I saw were miserable, just miserable, I didn't see any joy. Um, and then I met a chef, a fellow named Roger Berger, who you mentioned. And he was successful, and he was happy. He was, like, joyous. And when I saw him, I said, maybe that guy can save me because I see where I'm headed. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a train wreck waiting to happen. Way too successful, beautiful women, drugs, everything I wanted, driving a white Rolls Royce, pinky rings. I was definitely headed for a crack up, um, having no idea what I was doing while I was doing it. And, and what I learned uh, to get back to what you were saying, what I learned through him and the essence of, I think, Buddhism is that service to others in whatever way you express that, whether it's being nice to them, cooking them a meal, uh, massaging their feet, whatever that way is of your service, um, sharing a resource. Is the, is the most selfish thing you can do because it's the path to happiness. So not only were the people in Thailand, I'm sure, and I wasn't with you on the trip, nice to you, but they're always giggling. And they're always smiling. Always. Always. Like they're always, and they have nothing. No. You know, by our criteria, they have, they have nothing. They don't know where they're going to feed their children in two years from now. 
Just so you know, in Thailand, the average yearly salary of a person at best would be $10,000 to $12,000 a year. That's a doctor. Yeah, that would be a doctor. If you make $25,000, you are considered wealthy. And you make 30 or something, maybe you're like the manager of a hotel and you've been there for 10 years. I mean, if you can afford a car, you're very wealthy. You're on a bicycle or it's six people on a motorcycle. So... I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the way the government works is is women aren't really allowed to I guess work in the real workforce till after they finish university or I something like so. that. I believe so. I'm not very special. And so these people are forced into this world where the only way to make money is to go with guys and hope they give them money, and then they give the money to their family. They're always taking mm-hmm. care of their family. They're always to the family. And I never saw one Thai person not smiling. Not smiling. Gig- almost giggling. It's almost like they have a secret and they're giggling. And I think that secret is the joy you get from service. I mean, I, I found that in my life, I think, you know, I think it's it's what I concentrate on and I feel like I live a fairly happy life. And I, you know, and the only real change I made in my, the path of my journey was focusing on, on service. And I realized that for me, it's what I did for a living anyway. And it just made what I did better. I was naturally inclined to it. Um, management is service. You leave a hotel in the United States. You stay at a nice hotel. Parents, people tell you, what do you leave to the maid per day? Well, some people who stay at a Motel 3 might leave nothing. Mm-hmm. Or some people who stay at a Holiday Inn might leave a dollar a day. And if you stay at a Ritz-Carlton, depending on how wealthy you are or whatever, you might leave five, ten dollars a day, or you know, some people might leave twenty a day, whatever it is. I was leaving the hotel and I wanted to give the I mean, I think the person like fell off their oh, chair. Yeah. They're like, What are you doing? This yeah. is you can't give me this. Yeah. Like But well, how happy did it make you to give it exchange? And the point is it wasn't even like it was some extraordinary amount of money. It was Doesn't just normal. Yeah. But for them it was ten times more And and it's and you get more out of it than they do. Um, I did. Yeah. No, that's that. I, I left my hotel room this morning. I'm on my way to New York, and I little note, thank you so much, and left five dollars. I do the same thing, and I felt great. I do the you same know, thing. Just felt I great. always write the note. Yeah. I always write the handwritten exactly. note. Exactly. And I, that's. I think those are the. Uh, you know, I, I. I used to tell my kids all the time, think of Johnny Appleseed, but instead of dropping apples, you're dropping smiles. Just wherever you go, try and. You know, put a smile on the people's faces that you touch. And very selfishly, it's the most selfish thing you can ever do in your life because it makes you happy. You know, it's interesting you said that because in Malibu, where I'm from, there is a, you know, I'm Jewish. And there is a, I don't know what you call it, a congregation. of, And the guy has his congregation and, and a house that's on a mountain overlooking Malibu Chabad mm-hmm. overlooking the ocean mm-hmm. and he lives upstairs and downstairs is the school and the temple they convert everything uh-huh. into and I said to him sometime I said I'm so grateful for this podcast because I love doing it because it's free and millions of people get to hear it and it's helped so many people and he said Bear, it's it's not just that it's only 50% of it I said, what do you mean? I feel so great given this. He says, Barry, in the yin and yang of how the world works, 50% of it has to be you giving 
but the other 50% has to be the joy of people receiving and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. And so that's what yeah. it's all about. That's what and it's so all about. Yeah. It's great. I have to ask you this. Yeah. Tell me in well-documented form the last time you were an asshole to somebody and you went home and you sat on the couch in the fetal position. You said, my God, I've lived my whole life to be the nicest guy in the world. And I was, I got to clean that up tomorrow. You know, it's funny, but it's been a long time. I can't, I, I, um, for me, it's more, I'll get a thought that's a real asshole thought and I'll correct myself, but it rarely goes to action anymore. I mean, there was a time when it did, but I'm sort of retired now. Um, so it, dealing for myself is dealing then for a client. There were times when I would be an asshole to someone on behalf of a client and really feel bad about it afterwards. Um, but now I live a pretty um, Buddhist kind of life. I mean, I'm not a Buddhist, but I feel like I live a very uh, Buddhist kind of life. So I don't really, anger doesn't come up much. Um, all the things that would cause being an asshole um, are sort of not part of my life anymore. I have my resources. I think when, you're, when you don't have resources, there are times you're in a corner and you have to do what you have to do. One of the things that I've found as a manager that's the hardest part for me in keeping the philosophy that you keep, and I think anybody who knows me hopefully will say that I'm a nice guy yeah, and I try to be a nice guy. Yeah. But what happens is when you're working on behalf of a client, for me, my job, it's not about me. Yeah, it's all about me. It's all about the artist. Mm -hmm. The artist doesn't really, and I'm not saying this in a rude way, I'm saying it in a factual way, their job isn't to give a shit about how people feel about me. Right. Their job is to give a shit about how the deal went mm -hmm. and how they got Getting what they wanted. A to B. And so what I find the most difficult thing is when I'm working on negotiating a deal for an artist and they say what they want, and to get what they want... I find sometimes it creates a stain on my relationship with the people that I deal with and it takes a long time to clean it up mm -hmm. because you can't go in and say, yeah. hey, the reason why I was that way because this person's mm -hmm. a jerk and this is what they wanted right. and they're the jerk, I'm not the jerk. Right. And not to say the artist is the jerk, the artist just wants what they want. They mm -hmm. want what they want or else they don't want to do it. Yeah. Look, Emeril Lagasse renegotiates his contract and you're involved. Okay. The network is like, hey, uh, I don't know how to tell you this. We're the food network. This is what we have. What you want is the budget of our whole operating for the year. Right. We don't pay that. We pay $6 on a bucket of KFC. Right. When Emeril wants to renegotiate, I don't think the president of the Food Network is is saying, Chef Gordon, what a great guy, after he asked for 30 times what Emeril Lagasse was making. How do you clean that up and how do you keep think, the relationships? You know, each one is a unique, each negotiation is a unique, as you know better than anyone, is unique unto itself. Um, but as, as general overall rules, I never signed contracts with my artists. One of the reasons was so I could always talk honestly to them and not feel the pressure of a forced relationship. The second thing that I always, always say to him is, you, you don't pay me to get no's. You can pay anybody to get a no. You pay me to get yeses, but I can't, 
The only way I can get you yeses is if you don't pressure me for time, A, and you allow me to be reasonable. So if you really want $10 million an episode and the budgets are $10 million, I can give you the name of 20 managers who will go in and ask for it. I'm not one of them. It's not the way I operate. If you want to be realistic, the budget's $20 million. They probably can afford to pay you $2, 3000000 million. Let's see what their production numbers are. Let's approach this like grown-ups. If you want to approach it like a mad kid and have a knee-jerk reaction, there's guys who maybe can pull it off for you, but it's not what I do for a living. Um, I'm not into you know creating losers. I want everybody to win. So what I did with Emerald, actually, because I hit that. It was exactly what I hit. And, I, and uh, the network at that time was not making a lot of money. Um, Emerald, we, the first deal we negotiated was basically for free. I think he got $200 an episode. Didn't even get expenses to come from New Orleans to shoot the episodes. Sounds normal. It was a commercial for his career. It, it, was the, it was the highway that I wanted to build for all the chefs, not just for him. I said, we get broadcast and you'll create an art form. And that's our job. That's what we're here for. I did everything pro bono. So I wasn't, I didn't commission. This was a whole different era. In you didn't commission the $200 an episode? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but anyway, what I did is I, I sat down with them and I said, there's no money. It's never going to happen. Let's figure out a way that we can make more money by them not having money. Let's not look at it as a negative. Let's be a positive. And we created Emerald Spices. And I went to the network and I said, I understand you can't pay us. Give us one 60-second commercial in every show that we can program. And we created the Emerald Spice Company. He started doing BAM. And he made a million times what he would have made as a fee by owning the Spice Company, which he eventually sold to B&G Spices. So it's... You know, it's having a grown-up relationship with the artist, enough of a knowledge to know what you can get and what you can't get, and then a creative way to get to it. You can't do it every time, but, you know, that extra bit of effort, um, in most cases, you can get around it, you know. I don't mean to go back to the documentary, but... How does Mike Myers know you, and where did you meet Mike Myers? You're not you're not in the comedy world. It's like how did like how does this guy in a world that you're not even involved with do a documentary on you? Who's never I don't think who's ever done a documentary on anybody else. It started with one of those exactly the same thing we were just talking about. It started with um, a phone call. Alice was very big at the time that Mike went to do Wayne's World, and. Um, Somebody called up and said they wanted Alice for Wayne's World. We were doing a new record. And in those days, s records from soundtracks had great momentum. It was a period in time when, you know, Rocky was number one. Kenny Loggins had a soundtrack number one every week. Saturday Night Fever, Grease. Soundtracks, if you had a soundtrack and you had somebody with a suitcase willing to pay the radio stations, one plus one equaled a hit record. Um, so the and, one that's come closest to that recently would be Adele for Skyfall. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't exist now the way it used to exist. In the early days, it, it was gigantic. I mean, it was it was um, the easiest path to a hit record. But soundtracks this, didn't start until like the 70s, right? This is the 70s. But that was the fastest way at that particular period in time. If you could get a soundtrack to a significant record, you were home. And um, they wanted um, schools out. 
So I said to Alice, listen, I'm going to take this thing. They want schools out, but I'm going to take a position. I'm not going to agree to schools out. I'm just going to agree to doing the movie. And when it gets too late for them to get anyone else, I'm going to tell them we're doing a song from the new album. And I can make this work. You just got to back me up if anybody gets to you. Just... So um, about a week before the movie started, I called up and I said, you know, we're, we're thrilled doing it. I just got off the phone with Alice. I haven't had a chance to speak to him since we talked a month ago. And that's not what the, the song he wants um, in the movie. Oh, my God, you're kidding. I, we can't go back and tell Mike Myers. I said, I'll, I'll tell Mike Myers. I have no problem with it. Said, well, we don't have enough time to get anybody else. I said, I'm really sorry. But um, so Mike flipped out. And, but why uh, didn't he want the song? He wanted a song that was recognizable. He wanted it for the um, end credits. He wanted a song that people knew when they were watching the end credits to keep him in the theater. Um, I wanted a new song. And there was a scene in the movie where for about six seconds you saw Alice um, playing. It was like six or seven seconds. It was nothing. It was a walk-by. They were walking and talking in the background. Is, uh, so I went in to see Mike. I never met him. And uh, I said, listen, I, you know, I sort of have a job to do. I sort of lied to your producers. Here's the truth. For us to do, um, get a movie, a, sound, a song in a movie means a hit record for us. To do the end credits, all we're doing is helping you. We need to help us. So if we help you, you help us. Give me that six seconds, the new song, so I can write on it to the radio stations from the movie Wayne's World. You give me that, I'll give you the end credits. And he said, you got a deal. Hated me for it, I think, but said, you got a deal. We got it in. We sort of had a hit with it. Mild hit. Um, and um, a couple of years later, I heard he was at the Four Seasons, and I sort of wanted to um, smooth over if anything was, you know, still in his gut. So I called him up. I said I was. I happened to have um, Stallone and Schwarzenegger were coming over, I think, for dinner that night. So I invited him as he tells the story. He didn't believe me, but or Mal, Whoopi Goldberg or somebody. But he came over, and they were all there, and we started talking. And his dad had just died. And he was having a tough time. And he ended up spending a couple of months in my guest house. And uh, every night he would come over like a little kid and beg me to tell him another story. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved to cook. So for me, it was great. I had somebody to cook for. And over dinner, I'd tell him a story. And then <laughs> over the years, he'd come back and it got to the point where he would come to the house <laughs> and he would have written on his palm in ink, <laughs> uh, Charlie Chaplin. Uh, but, but he'd have names written. And we come and say, okay, you got a Charlie Chaplin story? And I, and I never didn't have a story for any of the people he ever had written on his hand. <laughs> and it, so, so bizarre. There was always some bizarre story. Charlie Chaplin, oh, yeah, I introduced him to Groucho Marx at the, uh, at the Savoy Hotel in London in the tea room. You know, and it was a great, I told the story. But anyway, um, and then he started saying, we have to document this. This ha you're not going to live forever. We have to document these stories. And I, um, the scariest thing to me that I saw through my career, more scary than the use of drugs by people, um, was fame. Very few survivors. The, f the more famous they became, the harder the fall. And I had already accomplished in my life what I was working for, which was being able to feed myself and feed my family and have a house and so I had no desire for fame. And he kept coming back at me and coming back at me. And um, finally, I had a, uh, 
a medical incident that I flatlined a couple of times and I woke up in the hospital and I was drugged out and I was all alone and I really feeling. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Sorry for myself, like, oh my God, <laughs> what an ending. <laughs> and he called up and he said, okay, now? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, yes, and, uh, here we are. <laughs> all the stories in your entire career, all of them, um, you can only choose one that you could pick the greatest storyteller in the world to tell at your funeral. <laughs> What's the story? Oh, God, there's so many stories. Um, you know, that's a really tough question there because my life is a series of stories. It's been like a Forrest Gump life. I, I think easier for me to talk about significant moments in my life that were part of stories, like meeting Roger Berger. I was um, at the Cannes Film Festival. I had a documentary that I had put together with uh, G. Gordon Liddy and Timothy Leary. And I had both of them in con for the festival. And um, we're in the Moulin des Moujans, which is this three-star Michelin restaurant, very fancy. Um, beyond celebrities in the room, Kirk Douglas, James Coburn, Anthony Quinn, Pavarotti. I mean, it was one next to the other. Everyone in suit and ties, 45 wine glasses on the table. It's very formal. And um, Timothy Leary stands up and hits his empty wine glass till everybody turns. Hi, I'm Dr. Timothy Leary. Some of you might have heard of me. And now I'm starting to get really nervous. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, if you, if you know about me, you know I have some uh, problems with the law with um, pharmaceuticals. And um, so it's hard for me to travel with drugs. I was able to bring in some uh, LSD on paper blotter. and uh, But I'm sure some of you must have sleeping pills or be on diets and have diet pills. I'm going to come around table to table and maybe we can trade. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh my God, he had just come. He had just, the, before he stood up, G. Gordon Liddy had gone to the bathroom and he took the salt shaker and put lines on the table. Now G. Gordon Liddy, oh, and a great preface to this, by the way, the reason I did the documentary is I, I tripped over the fact that in the late 50s or early 60s, Timothy Leary, at three o'clock in the morning, had G. Gordon Liddy, who was the prosecutor in this upstate county in New York, climb into his bedroom window to arrest him for drugs. But Leary had been tipped off. So he put peat moss in a container with a lock. 
So Liddy puts him in handcuffs, takes him to the station. They open it up, and it's people. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that was me. So um, in the middle of all this, and and in the room, all these people are there, but everybody's smoking cigarettes. Everybody's knees are bumping up and down. Um, I realize I'm sort of becoming one of them. I'm headed right to that place, um, and into the walk room, into the room. Walk this Roger Verger, all dressed in white, sort of a giggle on his face, um, and you could tell he was the power figure. Um, Coburn jumped up and hugged him. Anthony Quinn came over. Everybody was looking at him. And uh, that was the moment where I said, wait a second, maybe you can be successful and happy. Maybe you don't have to climb over other people. Maybe is, maybe this guy has found a path somewhere that's different. And um, he graciously, I went over to him at the end of the night and told him I wanted to be his grasshopper. <laughs> and he barely understood English. He had no idea what I was talking about. Grasshopper was from a Kung Fu series, of for course. those of you who don't know. Um, If you can take this pebble yes. from my hand grasshopper yeah and um he graciously even though, not knowing any what he said to me actually was uh the i'm a simple chef would you like to work in my kitchen and i said i don't know how to cook and he said well if you learn how to cook i'd let you work in the kitchen for a day and um i said how do i learn how to cook and he gave me the names of some cooking schools and i went that year to both schools marcella hansen in italy and Came back the next year as his grasshopper saying, I'm here, I'm here, I went to school. Could I? He had no idea who I was. <laughs> I, I was one of thousands of people who come through the restaurant. <laughs> um, but he, I told him, I said, you know, he told me if I went to these schools, I went to the schools. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to Bangkok to cook at the Oriental Hotel next week. I won't be here. And I said, could I come with you? And he looked at me with the, And, but he was so gracious and so much of the spirit we're talking about, he just got a smile and said, oh, but of course, if you would like to. Um, and I went to Bangkok with him. And um, I'm actually on my way to New York tomorrow night. I'm producing for the Culinary Institute. Mr. Verger died about five years ago. And uh, with 12 of, the, of his students, who are 12 of the greatest chefs in the world, we're doing a benefit to establish the Roger Verger Scholarship Fund tomorrow night, which I'm really proud of. Awesome. Um, awesome. A nice, nice circle to it. But so I would say that probably the most significant moment in my life. And the second most was um, meeting His Holiness the Dalai Lama um, and having the ability, having him in the same spirit that we talked about before. I offered to cook for him and they always say yes. It's not even a question. The, 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 the Tibetans are so so of that service moment, so of that um, compassion moment, that I couldn't get anyone to tell me what he eats because that would be imposing their will on me. So I couldn't even get, I had to go to a chef who used to cook for him. Whenever I would say, what, what can I make him? Because I was lost. I wasn't a Buddhist. I didn't know what to make him. And then, oh, whatever you make, you will love. <laughs> Let's back up here. How do you meet the Dalai Lama? Or am I supposed to say the holiness? I think you can say anything you want. He wouldn't care. So how you do you meet the anything. Dalai Lama? The guy. You could call him the guy. That was the interesting <laughs> thing. I'm thinking to myself, the Dalai Lama, what was his birth name? His birth name was Ginson Taizo, I believe is how you pronounce it. Ginson yeah, Taizo. He, it's, uh, he's the 13th rebirth of the Dalai Lama. They believe in rebirth. So you're born to a normal family and then you're discovered. 
How are you discovered? It's um, a, what they feel is a very scientific process. It's, there's a fellow whose job it is, who's also a rebirth, to get a vision. After the Dalai Lama dies, the fellow in charge of finding the rebirth gets a vision. In the case of this Dalai Lama, he got a vision of a, a house with a green roof, which was very unusual in Tibet. In the mountains, smoke coming out of a chimney. So they sent word out all around the country that anybody, to all the monks, did anyone know of a house with a green roof that had a child born around a certain date? And they got word that there was a house. Only one house? They found one. They traveled to the house. I don't know if there were more than one. I know they traveled to this one house. Now, not dressed as monks. They're normal people. Now, chances are there's more than one child in this house. But the age. It was by the age. Okay. The die and a rebirth. So they happened fairly soon. You, by, by when he was born and when the last Dalai Lama died, you get the link of the rebirth. So it has to be a baby. It's... A year, I think they found him, no, but it had, because you know, they don't always find him. They found this one at three years old. Um, it took three years to find him. And they bring into the room um, the favorite things of the Dalai Lama who died. So they'll bring in ten watches, and one of them was the old, whole, and they have the baby pick a watch. How could a three-year-old know to pick the watch? Because he's a rebirth. And so they put ten watches? They'll do, and they'll put robes they'll put down six or seven robes that picked the dalai lama robe they'll put down um you know the plates he ate off of but also phony ones it's almost like a medical test you know where they they give some people water and they and they have that's their way of doing that's their method and and if they pick them all right which is beyond random choice for a young kid especially if they're like six months old they get named the new they get taken from the family. So the family loses their child. Very. They're so happy to lose their child. They're happy. Oh, my God. They have a rebirth of the Dalai Lama in their heritage. And there's no greater honor for a Tibetan woman than to give birth to the rebirth of the Dalai Lama. And is she and the father allowed to visit and yeah. be around the Dalai Not Dal for a while, but yes. No, yeah. But not for a while. They got You get taken to it. His whole innocence in his book said it was... The only sad day of his life when he heard the door shut at the new home, when he knew that his life had changed, he wouldn't be playing with the kids in the street, he wouldn't be, you know, but it's a life of dedication. I know how hard it is to meet Shep Gordon on my podcast. <laughs> how hard is it to get to meet the Dalai Lama? Well, I mean, I, I got, again, I got lucky. I was living with a Hollywood actress. She invited me, Sharon Stone, she invited me to a speech he was making in L.A. When he because I was with her, we got taken backstage. When he walked in the room, I felt like I had just taken the greatest shower of my life. I don't know how else to describe it. I just felt completely clean from head to toe the second he walked in the room. He came in from a side door, big smile on his face. That was just you and no, Sharon. No, probably 40 people in the room. Got it. So it's like meeting the president. Yeah, You're exactly. In a room. It's a meet and greet backstage. And they're in a line, and you go past the line. And it's like rock and roll. Exactly. It is rock and roll. It's the same. But here's the interesting thing for you, okay? Mm -hmm. So I know there's 40 people in the room, and I know immediately in my mind what's going through your mind right now. My mind went to, is he real? <laughs> a real I was a big skeptic, truly a skeptic. But when he walked in, when I, the speech was fantastic, but I tend not to... Um, 
there's something to me scary about people who sell knowledge. Um, and he's a religion, you know. So to me, every religion, I, you know, I'm a Jew. Um, and culturally, I love my culture. The religion is tough for me to deal with. And all the religions are tough for me to deal with. And he represented that to me at the time when I went to see him. But I knew I had read about him and I, it all seemed nice. <clears throat> hey, but Kabbalah sells religion? Yeah, yeah, which is supposed to be pretty cool. But I don't, I don't know that as well. And um, <clears throat> but when he walked in the room, I was really taken. And my thought was, maybe this guy's real. If he's real, I, I went to a very selfish thought. Um, wow, I would love to be around him and suck up some of that joy. You know, and um, but I met him and I didn't think about it. But I went home to Maui and I went into the bookstore, and there was a poster. He was coming to the Big Island to do a uh, a retreat at the Dharma Center. And in those days, he wasn't who he is today. It wasn't Secret Service and stuff. It was much calmer. So I called up Sharon. I said, "Give me the name of the person who invited you." And it was a fellow named Rinchin Darlow. And I called him up and I said, "I went with Sharon to the thing. I think I met you there." And I live a lot of my life in the culinary arts. Hawaii has bountiful, beautiful food. And uh, the people of Hawaii, the farmers, the fishermen, would be so excited to show His Holiness what we have. Um, and he said, yes. And the next thing I knew, I was cooking for the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and they told me, have no expectations whatsoever. Um, don't, if you expect to ever see him because you're cooking for him, you shouldn't do the cooking. Um, you have to come to it with a pure um, mind. And In other words, the pure mind being that if you cook the whole meal and he doesn't show up, you're fine with it. Service. It, it, it has to be about providing the service, not him thanking you for the service, not him asking to see you, not <laughs> having an audience. It's, it's so about, what do you decide to cook? So I do some, uh, my, I, I assume that he's a vegetarian, but I find out about a week before he comes that he doesn't like vegetables or salad. He he eats his big meal in the morning. I got lucky because they wouldn't tell me much of anything because they're very gentle. But he had stayed at Fred Siegel's house of all places. And Fred Siegel's chef I got a hold of. And you know, so it was beef stew, spaghetti and meat. He eats a big meal at 5 in the morning. So like a beef stew and bread or spaghetti and meatballs. and um, A light lunch and then only broths at night. Uh, nothing after the sunsets. So, um, so as I'm doing my research, I see... Uh, in Tibetan culinary uh, is a very short Wikipedia. <laughs> um, and the only thing they really have is yak, which is a cross between, I think, a goat and a cow. And um, they have yak meat. It's why he doesn't like vegetables, because they're all in the mountains, so there's no, they can't grow it. It's always snowing. Um, the yak butter, out of the yak butter, they make uh, yak cheese. They do yak tea. So I had a friend who used to go to Tibet, and I got a smuggled in yak butter to make yak tea, thinking, oh, my God, he will be so happy. If I bring him yak tea on his first day in Maui, I can't imagine doing anything better for him. It's like a chicken soup for me. If, you know, um, so I work, and it smells so bad. It smelled up my whole house for two or three weeks. The worst smelling thing you've ever, it's like dirty socks times 100. And uh, so anyway, But I don't think I'm ever going to see him, and I make breakfast the first morning. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. 
whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And Richard comes in and says, bring us holiness to breakfast. I said, you're kidding, me? He said, yeah, it's like 5.30 in the morning and I'm really, now I'm sort of nervous. It's the big meal now. This is the big meal and I got a big tray and um, I had had a friend of mine who was a sculptor, uh, make dishes that had beautiful little things at the bottom and we put uh, uh, gardenia petals and that was a beautiful thing and the act tea. So I go into his room and he's brushing his teeth. He's got his, his robe like halfway and he's brushing his teeth and turns his head, big smile. Oh, hello. And I said, you're holding this. I have breakfast for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Everything is sort of a giggle with him and talks in a giggle. And uh, then he, yak tea. <laughs> and now I, I'm getting so proud of myself. I've grown five inches in stature. My chest is out. You are the coolest guy in the world, chef. I'm saying to myself, you actually brought some joy into his life. How great. And as and I, and I'm sort of <laughs> and as I'm thinking this, I hear him say, Yak tea, oh, that's why I leave Tibet. <laughs> <laughs> and the journey began. <laughs> So he never touched the egg. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I left the room. I left the tray. I left the room. I have no idea. But he, but what I what I saw by having the blessing of being able to be near him a bunch of time, that's his. He uses his global awareness and his sense of humor to let you know the, whether he's giving a speech or meeting someone individually that he's human. You know, you can feel him feeling people. Like me, I walked into his presence in awe. I was like in awe. And that's the last thing he wants because he's the real deal. The guys who aren't the real deal want you in awe. So, I mean, I, 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 another great incident with it was uh, the second place I cooked was Trinidad. And um, in Trinidad, I had never been before. But the thing that's unique is that the cultures have never assimilated. There's no hostility, but the Africans still wear their African garb. Um, the South Americans wear their South American Indian garb when they're dressing up. There's no true Trinidadian garb. It's all these cross cultures. Um, and we landed at the airport, and, and um, we were backstage. And I had cooked for him in Hawaii, and I cooked for him in New York, and now we're in Trinidad. And I don't know if he remembered me didn't remember me. I think someone on the airplane down probably told him who I was because when I first made eye contact, it was, I, I didn't feel any 
anything other than normal, like, no deeper than normal. Anyway, so we're backstage, and he goes, oh, you cook for me, yeah? I said, yes, your holiness. Oh, Hawaii, mm, very beautiful place. I said, yes, your holiness. And he said, New York, ooh, very crowded. I said, yes, your holiness. I said, ooh, now Trinidad. You only cook on islands? <laughs> <laughs> That's I mean, so anyway, so now we're waiting, and we go out into the hall, and in the hall are these beautifully dressed people, but in colorful, different things, and you could feel that you could hear a pin drop. This was like, you know, God's going to walk in the room, um, and he looks around, he takes a minute, and he's at the podium. Oh, so sorry. Must be in wrong room. This costume party? <laughs> <laughs> and you, nobody knew what to do. It was really awkward for like five seconds. And then he looks down. He's in his orange robes. And he goes, oh, dressed right for costume party. Good, good. <laughs> and everybody started laughing. And then he goes into what he's doing. He, he, he makes himself human. To, uh, only, I, 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 I've never discussed it with him, but to take away that edge from the people. And, the, and that's... That's service. That's what you do. Yeah, and that's real service. You know, that is, that's being aware of, of uh, and compassionate about everything in your surroundings all the time and trying to make it more comfortable, happier. Um, so anyway, I've been lucky to see people like him and Mr. Verger who get so joyful. And if you see His Holiness, you saw him speak, he's always at the edge of a giggle. And this is a man who has the weight of losing his country on his shoulders, which he takes very seriously. I serve on his board. And he knows that he, you know, he doesn't blame himself for it, but he lost his country when he was on his, on his watch. Um, and that's, that's big stuff. That's, I can't even compute it. And to still stay at the edge of a giggle is um, truly remarkable. You know, we think about our problems when we lose a deal, about losing a country. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you have flaws. Tell our audience what your flaws are. I would say my biggest flaw probably is um, it's easy for me to love everyone. It's very difficult for me to love one person. Um, I have to really work hard and... Um, really loving each a person. I've, it's been hard for me in relationships in my life. Um, I see it even with the kids that I raised. I'm sort of, I'm, I'm more committed to loving the planet and more detached from one-on-one. -on -one. I don't know why, I have no answer for it, but I think if there was one thing I would change in my life, um, which I don't know how to do, um, I would probably be spend more of my time trying to develop one-on-one -on -one love if that makes any sense. No, it does. So you spend so much time away from home. How did you or how do you create a better relationship with your children? I don't know. I, haven't been able, I mean, I have a great relationship. I think for me, I was for things like, it's easy for me to, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a Trump supporter. It's easy for me to love him, although I don't believe any, I'm completely against just about everything he believes in. But it's really easy for me to love him as the miracle that he is and forgive him, Lord, he knows not what he does. 
when my kids do something stupid, who I really love, it's hard for me not to go in my shell and go to that same exact place of, um, I mean, I know I love them, but it's hard for me to, I don't, I, I don't know exactly how to say the words, but I react to one-on-one differently than I do to people I don't know. So in other words, if one of your children said, Dad, could I talk to you one-on-one for a few minutes next time you're in town? I'd love to just sit. And they sat down across from you. And they said, Dad, I love you very much. These are the things that I'd like to work on with us, and I'd like to create a better relationship with you together. And and these are the things that I want us to work on and accomplish together. I remember what you said about you pay me for yeses. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite things and my expressions that I use over and over again is turning no's into yeses. Yeah, really important. So your child comes in and reverses roles with you Mm -hmm. and says, Dad, I'd like to turn these no's into yeses. Would you be able to do that and take it as a, you would? Mine is, mine is different too. I had, you know, my kids were adopted. Um, I was a single parent. We didn't spend all the years together. They live with their grandmother and their great grandmother come out for summers. So it's a little different. Um, but we have a, we have a very open relationship. It's just when I see one of them being unconscious, where I'm, if it was some, when I see someone in my life being unconscious, I confront him. Define unconscious. You know, if I see a friend of mine being, um, if I'm having dinner at someone's house and there's nobody there doing dishes and dinner's over and I get up to help and a friend of mine or a girl that I brought doesn't, I will go over to him and say, who the, you know, hello. Hi. You know, uh, hello. (laughs) Um, I don't do that with the people I'm closest to. I, I tend to go into a shell and get pissed off that they're not doing it. But you get pissed off that the Dalai Lama wasn't doing the dishes? No. Couldn't get pissed off at the Dalai <laughs> Lama. And that's a weird example, but I hope it comes across to what I mean. One of the things sitting across from you that might seem odd to you is that I love the way you are and I try to live my life, but a lot of people don't understand the underneath and the struggles underneath and the things that aren't working. (laughs) Oh my God. And those are the things that I think are really important for people to see, not just the, how do you make things work the way you do it, Mm -hmm. but how do you make things, things work when it's not working for somebody else? It may be working for you, but somebody else, it's that's where it takes the extra effort, extra time, extra thought. And that's, and it's important. That's, but the same thing being like relationships with women. Like, I mean, I think it's pretty clear to the world that generally speaking, I would like to think that most women want to feel safe. Mm. They want to feel secure. They want to know that the person they love is accessible. And they want to know that they're not going to be lonely. And occasionally when you're with somebody who might not make the kind of living that you make, they want to know that you're going to be able to be there Support if lifestyle. they need you. So when I think of your life and how you've lived it, all of those things I just mentioned, I'm having a hard time figuring out how you provided those things to a woman that you loved. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I have. Obviously, I have. <laughs> <laughs> then those would, you would think would be the most important thing to provide in that relationship. Uh-huh. So I think of you as one of the most, everything is, seems so zen and wonderful uh-huh. and everything with the clients and the personal life and this and the relationships and the stories. But I think what people uh, realize when you make a commitment to a certain lifestyle, mm-hmm. sometimes you can't make the most important thing mm-hmm. in your life, or at least let me say, in traditional in life. Traditional life. Work. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, relationships yeah. and love are, you know, you're in the music business. Mm-hmm. Maybe Alice Cooper is an example <laughs> of this. But you turn on the radio, and most every song is either about a wonderful relationship. A relationship yeah. that went relationship sour, yeah. uh, making up, breaking up. I think most great songs come from some sense of pain or joy inside you, and that relationships drive all that. So in your relationships, your personal relationships with women you love, do you go into the relationship in the beginning like, okay, I know this is going somewhere, but I just want to let you know this is my life, and chances are, you're not going to be happy with me in a in a year. No, or th- I don't. I for me different. I I, I um. I've always wanted a relationship. Um, part of the reason I retired was that I realized I was living other people's lives and never gave myself a chance to live my life. So I wanted to see what my life was, and I ended up getting married at sixty. I was married very young here in L.A. for. A couple of months. It was got annulled. It was one of just one of those things. Married a great girl who was a playmate. And it just was we were it was too fast and wild. And um, but so my first real marriage was at sixty. After I retired, and decided to try and find a life. What was the age difference? Uh, thirty years. Thirty year uh, age difference. Yeah, we actually was. She was thirty years, and her birthday is September fourth. My birthday is October 18th, and we got married between the windows, so it would be 29 years difference. <laughs> Before I met you, Chef, I really had a lot of respect for you. Yeah. Now, after I've talked to you, you're my fucking hero. <laughs> had a great um, girl, and we're still friends. I'm going back to Thailand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll come with you. <laughs> That's fantastic. I am having the best time of my life. I don't even... This is incredible. All right. Let's go way, way back. We go way, way back. We're going to try to figure out how you got to where you were. How did I get fucked up? So take me back to the town you grew up in, your mom and dad, your family, what kind of socioeconomic dynamic that was, and what was your first inspiration to being in the entertainment business? What happened? Um, raised in the suburbs, right? When the suburbs really first started to happen, there was um, the first generation of, of American born from immigrants started to make enough money to move outside of the city and provide a better life for their families. A place called Levittown was the first suburb. We were in that wave. We moved from Queens to Long Island to a, a real house with a backyard and three bedrooms and um you know every house was the same on the block i think the house was eight thousand dollars my dad made in his big year nine thousand dollars but we never wanted for anything um very middle class life my mother was very very tough jewish lady 
and I, I think if you're Jewish, you understand what I'm saying. There's a certain, in many of the families, the first wave particularly, who were children of the Depression, their parents, um, there was very dominant women and very docile men in a lot of the Jewish homes, and I, I was in one of them. And my mother was, um, for whatever reason, not her purpose in life was not to spread joy. <laughs> this was not, we had a different consciousness. Did you ever see your mother tell your dad that she loved him? No. Do you ever see your dad tell your mom that she no, loved him? Not even part of the equation. Do you see a correlation no, possibly yeah, no, no, I, I, in yeah. how you are? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I always, I've, I've, it was funny, up until I wrote the book, I always felt that the guiding force of my life was my anger at my mother for the way she treated me and always gave that the reason for maybe my relationships with women weren't working, although I could never draw the complete line. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.